0: This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR.
1: Welcome back to the ZMAR Podcast. I have David Greenwald. He is um, a Midwest native as well. I think this is a great interaction. We probably... Who knows? cross paths at one point. We just never knew it until um, now. I appreciate you coming, joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here, Butch. Can you give our audience just a little bit of background on it? Um, I would love to do it myself, but you have a lot to bring to the table, and I think uh, you wouldn't be—you'd be the best person to share some of that information. I've been interested
2: in fitness my entire life. Don't ask me why. It's a part of my DNA. When I was in grade school, I wanted the president's physical fitness. President's Council on Physical Fitness Award, you know, Mm -hmm. at that broad jump a certain distance, run, you know, a certain distance in time, throw a baseball a certain distance. I wasn't a great athlete. I was a B team, C team kid. But for whatever reason, when it came to fitness, it just clicked for me. And I really wanted I'm 10, 11 years old, and I want this award. I mean, what the heck, you know, I mean, so um, I got a couple years, I've still got the patch and the sticker somewhere, you know, put tucked away. And I was so proud to get that. But my start of my senior year of high school, a, a friend who was a year older than uh, me invited me to come start training with him in the weight room. I started in 1982, um, been doing that in some way, shape or form. It's changed a lot, but it's, it, you know, over the last 41 years. So mm-hmm. I've never stopped training, did bodybuilding and powerlifting in my twenties and thirties. I was a police officer at that time, uh, became an Illinois state trooper. When I got out of the academy uh, for the state police, I was still bodybuilding, powerlifting, you know, and I said, I want to start a business where I want to start a supplement business, mail order supplement business, where my goal will be, if I can just make enough money to pay for my own protein powder, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And so I started, we had a little house and I started in a tiny little room and there was no internet. So I placed little classified ads in the back of bodybuilding magazines, flex iron man, muscle mag, you know, and here's a toll free mm-hmm. number. And you know, low prices and this kind of thing. And I was as shocked as anybody, but over the course of five years, while I was still a state trooper, I grew that business into about 5 million in revenue and 45 employees. And I say that because I was still bodybuilding, powerlifting, I was writing um, a newsletter. I was, I kind of likened myself back then to a bit of a Ralph Nader. It just in the sense that I was like, set the record straight, Mm. you know, uh, supplements that weren't what they said they were. I called them out. I tested supplements. I wrote about nutrition and exercise and supplementation and fitness. Um, I used to have to go to a medical library, scan the, the medical journals, um, copy them, bring them back to my office and write. There's no internet. This is how we did mm-hmm. it, you know. Mm-hmm. But people knew that I had done bodybuilding where you get down to five, 6% body fat. You bulk up. I was 235 pounds when I was my heaviest for powerlifting, you know. So they knew I was—I had gotten strong, I'd gotten lean. They knew I wrote about it. They knew I was someone who really cared about telling the truth, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had thousands of customers with the supplement company, and and uh, email came in, Butch. It was amazing. We've got email, you know, mm-hmm. and people uh, started emailing me stuff like, "Hey, Dave, real quick, it wouldn't be too much trouble to ask. I don't want to bother you. I don't want to take up too much of your time." you just tell me real quick how i can lose 30 pounds and keep it off forever i'd I'd appreciate it well you can try to answer that in an email um and i did but Mm -hmm. i did try i mean but i Mm -hmm. also saw that i was really giving you know incomplete answers and not doing them the, the justice they deserve but i also found that here i am state trooper about to leave the state police because the business is doing well in the supplement side but i'm also finding that trying to help people get from that someplace heavier less healthy to someplace leaner and healthier, I was so passionate about wanting to do that. I so wanted to help them. And I just found my, truly my heart and soul just went to, I want to help these people. So that was around 97, 98. So I I wrote uh, a book, about 500 pages. And the reason it's so long is I wanted it to be comprehensive. And I wanted to go beyond just nutrition and exercise. And this huge component that so few still talk about and if they do, they, they kind of shy away from it because it's the most messy, complex part is the emotional fitness. So I, I covered nutrition, exercise, but also this huge leg of weight management, emotional fitness, which ultimately is a primary driver of whether nutrition and exercise are going to stay on track. Mm-hmm. So I, I did that, started the coaching program in 1999, uh, did it virtually, and
1: have been a virtual health coach specializing in weight management since 1999 there's a lot has changed over the years. Right. And so, and that one topic I had brought up and you said that you love the content and you wanted to share it. And so like when we go, go back before all the science, right. The medical books, the, the copies you made to bring back to your office, people didn't have access to any of that. Right. And so there was a period of time where everybody was relatively healthy, uh, especially in America. Right. But then as time developed and then COVID really hit and, and changed a lot of people's lifestyle and it's becoming harder and harder for some people to make those changes. And I guess what's the difference between back then when we had less, information and, and today. Great question. So, Hmm. COVID, in
2: my view, just exposed our weakness. It exposed our vulnerability. That's what COVID did with regard to weight, obesity, the risk Mm -hmm. factors associated. It just exposed us to where we already were, what we were already doing, and uh, the position we had already found ourselves in. So in 1970, if we just go back to there, we, as adults in the United States, we were about 15% obese. Today, we're 43% obese. And they're projecting by 2030 that we're going to be 50% obese. So we have just gone the wrong direction over the last 50 years. And like you were saying, so what's changed? You know, what's what's going on? Well, the primary driver, in my view, if I was to sum it up, and I don't like reductionist views. I don't like single bullet theories. I don't like things that get boiled down to just one thing, and that's not what I'm doing. So I have to say collectively what's contributed to where we are is are all factors that promote in an obesogenic environment the overconsumption of ultra-processed food. All of those factors and all elements that go into that are the single greatest factors collectively for why we are where we are, including the fact that ultra-processed food is addictive for a higher number of people than people realize and that even the research has caught up they haven't caught up with that yet. Um, so that's, that's what's going on. So what's going on is that ultra-processed food has displaced or crowded out real food. So what do we do? For hundreds of thousands of years as Homo sapiens, and up until maybe the last 70, 80, 90, 100 years? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Take right. your pick. And I won't yeah. get in an argument with somebody whether it's 60 or 100 yeah, sure. years. People ate mostly, and I don't mean mostly like 51%, I mean like 80, 90, 95% real food. You know, so it's the opposite now. 60 to 90% of what we consume as adults in the United States is ultra-processed food. So that's the difference. That's where, where books may not have been needed. You know, grandma and great-grandma, to us now, <laughs> ate real food. They, there was no almost almost, it was there, but almost no such thing as eating out. Mm-hmm. there were no fast food places. There was no convenience mart. There was no 24 seven access. You know, there was no television promoting da with, with marketing and advertising. Um, so it's not like there was none of that. I mean, in the form of marketing or advertising, but it was just so limited. And if you just think about the availability of information, we have access to now with the web and TV and all the digital sources and it's, it's absolutely insane. So we are in this incredibly obesogenic environment mm-hmm. that, and by that, it, people probably already know, your listeners especially probably already know mm-hmm. what that means, but I'll just say obesogenic in my view is just all factors that contribute to behaviors that promote obesity. That's, and that's why we are amazing. where we are. That's what's going on. We've completely turned things upside down with regard to real food versus ultra-processed food, and I'm happy to give my working definition of real food, but I'm happy to take it whatever direction you want to go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot there. And so I want to make a a small transition. Um, I was listening to one other podcast that you were actually a guest on and you had made a huge point because one of the other excuses that we have today is that we're busier than ever. Right. And so we're running around and, and, and me include, I got four kids on the ice. We're running all over the place. Um, we're at five different rinks. Uh, um, the the list goes on, right? And right. so we're like, well, you have to adapt, right? And and you have to feed the kids. You have to feed yourself. Uh, but one thing you pointed out was, um, and and you could s- summarize it in, in, in any way you want after this, but. But basically you were saying, well, you still show up to work on time. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And and so and you you still have other obligations, you still bring your kids to sports on time and and you make other priorities. But but somehow we're not um, making this a priority. And and can you dive a little bit because you actually then lead into the theory of you got to find your why. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So.
2: The way I look at it, a lot of people think in weight management. They'll kind of come to me, especially my clients will come to me in the beginning. They'll they'll have a feeling. They may not say it exactly, but they'll have a feeling. If I know what to do, I just need to do it. When they say that to themselves, even if they don't verbally say it, what they're saying is, I need to eat a little less and better. I need to exercise a little more and better. That's what they're saying. It's the mechanical ins and outs, the the energy in and out, the caloric deficit part. The you know the the eat less, exercise more. Um, you know that's what they're saying, but there's so much more to it. So that's two pillars. In my view, there are six pillars that need to be addressed to really win this once and for all. So what you're referring to with regard to um, willpower, which in my view, willpower is the, uh, the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, whether you feel like it or not. And so there are many examples you gave two that I often give, which is if you work for someone else, when was the last time you were late for work? almost never or never. It's really Mm -hmm. close. It's so rare when it is. Why is that the case? Because you're never sick? Because you're always in a great mood to go into work? Because you're literally clicking your heels together for every single day. You've got to be there at whatever time and work your 10, 12 hour. No, absolutely not. You didn't just have an argument with your spouse. You weren't just crying 10 minutes before it was time to go in because of some Mm -hmm. tragic thing that happened or something you perceived as overwhelming. Of course, all that stuff happened, but you still went in and not only went in, you were in on time. So how did that happen? That takes incredible willpower to do that. Doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done whether you feel like it or not. You sure as heck didn't feel like going in, but you did it. And you do it day after day after day and you don't miss. The reason that's the case and the reason you will be there for your kids to pick them up and you won't leave them spending the night at school <laughs> instead of being picked up on time or soccer practice or hockey practice or whatever it is is because the why you have for going to work and being there on time for picking up your your kids Um, is so incredibly strong that it drives willpower. Why power drives willpower. It's universal, always has, always will. And for anything that's hard, that takes a long time, that isn't naturally in your wheelhouse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And for a lot of things that even are somewhat in your wheelhouse that still take a long time and take perseverance and take dedication, that's willpower, But what drives that is why power. So if you've achieved a higher, you know, a a, a degree, you know, in advanced education, that took incredible willpower. You didn't always want to go to class. You didn't want to show up. You didn't want to do the work. I don't want to take the test. I don't want to study on and on and on. But you did it. Why? Why? That's it. The answer is why? Your why was so strong for doing the work to do that, that you were willing to do what needed to be done when it needed to be done, whether you felt like it or not. So nutrition and exercise, two pillars why power is a third pillar why power driving willpower is a third pillar and it's an area that very few really look at and if they do they only look at it superficially which isn't going to work in our obesogenic environment we have too many internal and external forces butch working against us we can win this we absolutely can win this we can get to any healthy weight we want and we can live there that plus minus five ten pounds right for life Absolutely. I don't care what your background is. Don't care what your history is. Don't care what genetics you've got in the family. Don't care what um, medical things you've got going on. And when I say I don't care, I do care, but it's not going to prevent you from getting to any healthy weight you want and living there. But in our obesogenic environment, we've got to look at the why and we've got to drill down and we've
1: got to make it as strong as possible. And too many people come at it way too superficially. Yeah, definitely great points. Now, in your book, you point out something, and, and it kind of leads into what you were talking about: is that in some reasons we lose the some of our willpower or doing just enough to to get by is because of this new normal, right? And so yeah. you're like, and 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 you actually elaborate on what's really normal, right? Like, yeah. uh, is this okay? Is this okay? And you bring out a lot of stats in that, and you're like, uh, who wants to be normal? if in your mind you think, man, because you are, let's say you are
2: obese or you are much heavier than you want to be, um, saying, I just want to be normal. That is not something to aspire to. Normal Mm -hmm. today, 70% of Americans are overweight. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be normal in -hmm. that regard. 43% obese. It's approaching normal 50%. We're going to be right there. You know, so, um, all the things that go into what's normal. So, my thing is, what do we got to be? Perfect then? No, perfect is a myth. It's a trap. It's a booby trap in, in fact, because you kind of get into that all or nothing either or either, either I'm perfect or just forget it. And that is not where we want to be. And that is not required to win this. To me, what we we don't want to be mediocre or normal. What we want to strive to is exceptional. Exceptional, you know, rise up above the status quo be above the norm. And I don't mean looking down on them in some judgmental way. I just mean in behaviors and the way we want to live and the way we think. Um, We don't want to be normal. So it's not something to strive for. So rising up without being judgmental is more the goal and definitely not perfection. Um, That's not something to strive for because that's just going to set you up for failure
1: sure sure and so uh, leading into people that want to make those changes right they don't want to be normal they don't want their current normal at least and they want to make changes and um uh, so could you kind of touch on um some of these fat i always call them fat diets because uh i I do think little pieces of each one actually work i'm not a fitness guy so i don't take my advice but but i feel like it's little pieces here and there but then people don't you know, embrace it um, fully enough or long enough, and they usually give up. And then in your book, you also talk about these uh, one meal losers, uh, which I think transitions to a good conversation to have about intermediate fasting. And, um, and so can you comment on on those? Sure. So, you know, intermittent fasting has been around
2: for a long time. And I kind of chuckle because you're considered to be you know, uh, intermittent fasting, so to speak, if you've gone longer than about six hours from consuming anything with any caloric value, you know? So I I always say I'm intermittent fasting every day. I go to sleep. I wake up seven or eight hours later, you know, breakfast is I have broken my fast Mm -hmm. breakfast. that's what it is. You're breaking your fast. So, you know, I just kind of chuckle and I say, I'm I'm breaking my fast. So I I intermittent fast, you know, every single day, if I want to be, you know, in vogue and, and all that. So here's the thing. I'm not against intermittent fasting. Um, I think that it can work for certain people. What intermittent fasting typically does is it doesn't tell you what to eat, but it gives you parameters um, on when to eat. You know, a, a real common strategy is a 16-8 where you fast 16 hours a day and you eat eight, and you can eat within an eight-hour window. Now, you know, at the most loose definition of that, it's not telling you what to eat. It's just saying you've only got eight hours to get it in. Um, what I find, and of course, the research when people first started touting this a few years back, especially it's been around a long time, things like this have been, but when people really started talking about it, um, it, this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. It was going to be the savior. It was going to be literally everything in nutrition and fitness and and just what it was going to do for longevity and cellular health. And it was just, it was literally going to be the cure. Um, It was touted as just much, it, it was given much more credit than the research was able to substantiate. Now the research is coming out more and more. And what they're finding is it's, your mileage may vary. It may help you because it does put these parameters on when to eat. So you say, look, I can only eat from noon to 8 p.m. Okay. What I found with my clients is it can be okay for some people. But What, what happens is if someone doesn't address the six pillars on the, that we've yeah. talked about, three of them, mm-hmm. if they don't address the six pillars, the obese mind or the overweight mind is going to find a way. Okay. Mm-hmm. So give me eight hours. I'll still overeat. Okay. Well then what some people have done is, all right, all right, you're overeating in eight hours. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a 20 and a four. We're going to compress the window, 20 hours of fasting, four hours of eating. You know, the, the mind that is still hooked under the influence, so to speak of these ultra processed foods and, and, and all of the industrial additives and everything else. But the mind that's still under the influence will find a way in four hours to overeat unless you've addressed the pillar. So, Intermittent fasting can work for people as far as weight management and health and all that. But um, there are also potential issues with it that people, you know, should be concerned with. Um, It isn't a one-size-fits-all. It may not be good for for, uh, women who are hoping to get pregnant or who are pregnant. You know, we're down to one or two meals a day. What are we doing about nutrients? What's going on there? Um, People that have certain uh, medical conditions, diabetes and and other and other factors, age, uh, people are more likely, believe it or not, to have falls if they are following something that's intermittent fasting rather than not. Now, it probably has a lot to do with blood sugar regulation and, and this kind of thing. But I'm just saying that it's it it isn't the answer. It might help. It might be a tool or a strategy, along with the six pillars, you know that I've that I'm mentioning here, because you got to have nutrition exercise, why? you got to address compulsive eating. You've got to address emotional fitness. You've got to have support if you really want to win this and, and make it the easiest on you. So if intermittent fasting fits in there, great. Ketogenic dieting, kind of same thing. I'm going along with kind of your yeah. just general premise. Right. Ketogenic dieting, same thing. You want to bring carbs all the way down to 30 grams a day. It helps you pay attention to labels. It helps you eliminate added sugars. That's great. Um, your mileage may vary. I don't find 95% of people who start it stick with it um, because ultimately carbohydrates are just so prevalent in our society. And, uh, they, people just find eventually I just want carbs. I want some carbs. Um, Mm -hmm. but not everybody's that way. And again, if it, it can be a tool used in the mix of the things that are really necessary, you know, the pillars then fine. And as you know, in my program, I'm not someone who someone says, Hey, I'm doing keto. Um, I'm like, okay, well, we can support that. Let's make sure these other pillars are in place. Let's make sure good nutrition is in place. Let's make sure we're doing this and that mm-hmm. while you're doing keto and, um, and you'll be fine. Intermittent fast. Hey, I'm doing intermittent fasting. And you were talking about one, one meal losers. Uh, there's something called OMAD now. I don't know if you've heard of that. One no. meal a day. So they oh. take an intermittent fasting, butch, all the way down through this compression where they're like, all right, 20 hours of fasting and four hours of eating didn't work. Let's go one meal a day, you know, Mm -hmm. that's it. 23 hours of fasting. But a lot of times what some or what some people will do with that is they will eat for an hour. They're getting in 2000 calories, 3000 calories, you know, in an hour. Pretty tough to have a really nice assimilation of the nutrients. It's pretty tough to absorb more than about 60 grams of protein in a sitting. Are you getting enough protein and you're doing that? Are you getting all the nutrients you need if you do that? And also, by the way, I'm going to say again, unless you've addressed the pillars and the mindset and emotional fitness and why and all that stuff, you can still out eat it. I mean, you can still eat to excess and not lose weight doing one meal a day. I mean, it depends on what you're eating, how you're doing it and all that. So, um, so we got to be careful with some of these things. And um, But I'm not someone who's dogmatically like against these things. If they are as intelligently as we can being used as a tool
1: in the overall, uh, mix. Yeah. Just on another side note. So the first time I ever tried it myself, um, to see, it was actually during COVID figure I'd give it a shot. And the only thing that I really got out of it, because I didn't probably just like many of the people you talked to probably didn't do it, um, correctly. It helped in certain ways. I think I ended up increasing the amount of energy. Um, and I did try to focus a little bit on the foods that was eaten in that window. Um, but even to this day, so we're talking about almost three years later, the only thing that I could I could recall that of my success, if you will, is the mental mindset of the skipping the meal, right? And what it did teach me is I could go to an event or a family get-together, and even if I'm over-hungry, there's still an element of control um, that wasn't there before, and it, it probably always was. It just now, it's a mental mindset where now I'm more aware of it. I, I think it can, you know, one of the things it can do is it can,
2: it can help people again. Um, there's, there's ways to do this. It can help people realize they aren't going to die for being hungry, you know? <laughs> right. And I say that because there's, for a lot of people and a lot of my clients, there's a real fear to hunger. Mm-hmm. And that can stem from childhood things. It can stem yeah. from, Middle childhood, adult things, it can, it can, it can come from trauma. It can come from just, it's sometimes it's hard to put your finger on exactly where it's coming from. But a, this fear, this, this fear of being without or not having sufficient, you know, um, can kind of, it can have, it may have transferred from something else in their life um, to this, where when that hunger's there, it's an, oh my God, instead of a physiological thing where you say, hey, my body says it's hungry. Uh, First of all, first of all, we need to kind of discern, is it a below the neck hunger Mm -hmm. or is it above the neck hunger? Right. Mm -hmm. So the below the neck hunger, stomach physiological, I'm actually hungry. It's been a while since I ate. It's time to eat, you know, this kind of thing. Whereas the above the head is more the emotional craving. Um, I'm not really hungry, but my brain is hungry. And I've got these uh, again, all these factors that, that are related to, you know, our obesogenic environment, internal and external forces. Um, driving that craving.
0: If you own a business, Elite Benefits of America wants to remind you that health insurance open enrollments are either happening now or coming very quickly. And this is the time to review and implement a health care plan to make or keep you as the employer of choice. Deadlines for open enrollment range between November 1st and January 1st. Get ahead of the curve. The Small Business Special Enrollment Period, part of the Affordable Care Act, now allows employers with 49 employees and under to offer health benefits without contributing a dime to the employee plan. Help your employees save money on taxes with health insurance they're already paying for with their hard-earned dollars. Butch Zimar from Elite Benefits of America wants you to reach out to him today. Visit EliteBenefits.net or call 708-535-3006.
1: Obviously we're doing the podcast for educational purposes and you make a point if you're making any lifestyle changes uh, obviously consult with a physician just to make sure cuz everybody's health is a little bit different and of course yes. there might be other things ticking that we we're not discussing on this on this podcast. It's been a misconception that I've known until I saw your video about um, whether you're doing weight gain or weight loss, you know, I, I, weight gain related to muscle um, and, and protein intake. Right. And yeah. so and I love the beginning where, you know, if you're 300 pounds and everybody you had this and I, I had the. Idea as well for many years is one gram of protein per weight, and so oh you're, you're you're having three hundred grams yeah. of protein. Yeah. And I never put it in perspective that way because I've never been um, at three hundred pounds, but you know the reality is some people are and they're trying to find solutions. And and you're like, there's no way there's it's, it, you can't do three hundred grams of yeah. protein in a given day. So can you talk a, just a real briefly before we transition uh, sure. other things because I think that's important because there's athletes that I know that always had said one gram. Of protein per your body Power weight. Body but weight. The, but these, are, these guys are 130 pounds, 150 yeah. pounds, right? right. So right. Uh, So if you mind commenting
2: on those. You know, so often, like I said, kind of in my intro, so often over the years, just the way I see and think of things, I just process it differently. So very, very early on, I'd heard the same thing back in the 80s, 90s, you know, gram of protein per pound of body weight. When I really started working with clients and I had clients that are 300 pounds, 350 pounds, 400 pounds, whatever. You go, that doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. That's a lot of protein. I don't care who it is. Now, if you're a pro bodybuilder, you're probably going to be 300 grams of protein. You know, I got it. You know, a a pro bodybuilder today, just in case your audience doesn't know, a pro bodybuilder male on stage can be five, 10, nearly 300 pounds at four or 5% body fat. Wow. It's insane, right? Mm -hmm. So that person, 300 grams, got it. But I was like, my clients, 300 grams of protein. That's ridiculous. So when I looked at the actual, protein recommendations in research, here's the thing. When we're in status quo, not losing weight, not gaining weight, fat is what I'm speaking of here. Mm-hmm. We're not pregnant. We're not involved in recovering from trauma and, or in, in, uh, with the goal of muscle gain. If we're not in any of those situations, we're just kind of rolling along status quo. We need a certain amount of protein, okay? And that certain amount of pro- protein is generally 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, 0.8, okay? So that's per kilogram of body weight Mm -hmm. per day is what they'll say Mm -hmm. they don't break it down to lean body mass or anything. Basically that doubles, double it. If we're in fat loss mode, if we're in recovering from trauma, if we're trying to add muscle, we're not status quo, we're changing. We're trying to reduce fat, you know, keep muscle or gain muscle, whatever. Then the protein requirements double and it goes to about 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram per kilogram of body weight per day. Most people are going to be okay with that recommendation. With regard to protein, even if they're 300 pounds, but what I like to do is I kind of look. I like to look at for protein recommendations. Look at two things. If someone knows their body fat or their lean body mass, which basically, if you just think lean body mass, just it's not just muscle. It's muscle, bone, water. It's everything other than fat. That's kind of what lean body mass is. A lot of people just think of it as muscle, but it's muscle, bone, water. If you know your lean body mass because you've had a DEXA body composition scan or you've had some kind of body fat scan where you know your lean body mass then a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass. That will work. So, a 300 pound person will, could easily be 50, 55, 60% fat. Okay. So, then that only leaves them 40 to 50%, you know, whatever lean body mass. Then now we're in that 150 gram range, right? 150 pounds of lean body mass, 150 grams of protein. That's going to make sense. An easier way to do it for people that say, well, I, I haven't had a body fat done and have no intention of getting a body fat done is you can google what's my bmi at 25 or you can google a bmi chart and all body mass index and all that what that'll tell you is what I what I'd ask you to do is find out what your weight would be with a body mass index of 25 and 25 is that cutoff between normal healthy weight and overweight so if you're up to if you're up to 24.9 bmi if you're 18.5 to 24.9, you're healthy, normal weight, 25 to 29.9, you're overweight, 30 and up, you're obese. So that 25 BMI is a, I have found is a good place to look at where everybody can do it. You don't need a body fat test. Just Google BMI chart. You'll plug in your height um, and you say, and you look for what will I, what would I weigh if my BMI was 25? It, it, whatever that is, that's mm-hmm. usually going to be a good protein target as well. So that way, if the person is, let's say it's a male and he's 5 5'10, five, 300 pounds, mm-hmm. What would he weigh at a BMI of 25? It's probably going to be about 160-170. Mm-hmm. That's a good protein in grams. Whatever right, that right. weight is in pounds, sure. In the protein in grams, it'll match pretty well. So anybody can look that up and find that real easily and that and you spread that out over you know, three, four, five, six meals, whatever it is, uh, feedings a day. And, um, you should do, everybody will do real well with that. The only people I would caution, um, is anybody that's being treated for, you know, kidney issues, but really only if you're being treated for it. Um, because otherwise higher protein intake is not hard on the kidneys at all. But if your kidneys are already compromised, then it's something you'd want to do in concert with your physician.